Uh, hello, good evening everyone. My name is Etienne from Club. I'm part of UCL in the Development Planning Unit. And I have the pleasure to kind of uh, chair this session with Laura, although of course we come to listen to Laura Carson herself. I just want to say a few thank yous and also invite um, someone from the Radical and Americas Initiative <coughs> to say a few words about the network. So first of all, I want to thank Radical Americas uh, themselves. Uh, they were instrumental in making this event happen. The Institute of the Americas, and in particular, uh, Daisy Folk as well, who, amongst other things, set up the logistics, registration, and the drinks and nibbles that we have. And also my department, the Money Unit, for supporting the event. And also to thank you, all of you, for joining, and for Laura for making it. She has been in a speaking tour in a few countries. She made reference to the outcome of the tour in Barcelona, Paris, Sheffield, here. I think we left with a few other events in London, and then Madrid. And then she goes back to Mexico. So thank you for making space for us. And Jeff, uh, Jeff Goodwin, if yeah. you want to say a few words? Yeah, 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 just a few words. My name is Jeff Goodwin. I'm a lecturer in development studies at the University of Oxford, and I'm also a member of Radical America's Network. So I really just wanted to um, say a few words about the network before we begin, just to draw your attention to it. We hold regular events, like this kind of event, typically at UCL, but also Oxford and other places. And um, we have a conference every year, and we also have a journal, which is published um, through University, um, University College London Press, uh, an open access journal. So I strongly encourage you to look at our, our, our outputs and contribute. And if you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter, Radical Americas, and also email us on uh, radicalamericas.gmail.com. So that's just a few words about the network, and we're very pleased to um, be collaborating in this event tonight. Thank you very much, Jeff. I will just say a few words about Laura Carlson. I believe many of you have either known her, read about her, or read her work, or seen her. So she has a lot of presence also in, in, in media, in both Mexico, the US, and elsewhere. She's a Mexican-American political analyst, journalist, and media commentator. She's based in Mexico City. She has a BA in social thought and institutions and a master's in Latin American studies, both from Stanford University. She's um, author and co-editor of Confronting Globalization, Economic Integration and Popular Resistance in Mexico. She has been directing the Americas program of the Center for International uh, Policy. And she has written extensively on NAFTA, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues in different media, The Nation, Le Monde, New York Times, etc. She's a regular com columnist and commentator in uh, outlets like Democracy Now! and has also her own programs like Hecho en América in Rompimiento Televisión, which is an independent uh, media uh, initiative in Mexico. She participates in movements against militarization and for human rights on both sides of the border. And uh, with any further ado, uh, <laughs> thank you to all, and thanks, Laura, again for being here. Well, thank you, and thank you especially to Etienne and to Jeff for organizing this event. As uh, Etienne was mentioning, I've been going to different places because I want to take advantage of this trip to just see what I, people were thinking about Mexico and to present a little bit about an evaluation kind of at one year. 
as many of you know, the elections in July 1st, there were tremendous expectations. And there were expectations on the national level because for the first time, we saw um, a, a, a massive hope that things could finally change. And they pretty much gotten to a low point in Mexican politics. By the time the election came around, violence was out of control. And uh, this had been going on for years with promises that it would end. And, and instead, it was actually getting worse. Uh, the economy was sort of flatlining. People really had no faith in the government, or, or a majority anyway, the people, because of course in any country there's a diversity of opinions. And the ability of the government, or even the willingness of the government to really confront the kinds of problems they were seeing. And so they saw this as a real political option. There was a high voting rate, uh, and, the, and Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador won the elections with more than 50% of the vote in a field of, um, so it was fairly overwhelming. And there was a lot of expectations also on the international level. As also you probably are aware, we were in a context where we'd seen the pink tie, or this period in which there were a number of center-left governments with the same kind of a, comp a, a commitment to, to redistribution of wealth in vastly unequal countries a commitment to helping the poor and most marginalized sectors. Those uh, governments had, for one reason or another, uh, been driven out of office, and the governments that came into office in these same countries were very right-wing, in some cases ultra-right-wing. And so, of course, we're talking about Bolsonaro in Brazil, who, after imprisoning Lula, was able to come to power there. We're talking about Argentina and Macri, and we're talking about Paraguay in the case of Ecuador, where you have a right-wing shift after a different expectation with the person who was actually elected. Uh, in this context, the possibility that a country as big and as important as Mexico could have an election that resulted in a center-left government was very interesting to people with that same kind of commitment to social justice and hope for a break with the economic model that had caused so much inequality and suffering, including poverty and migration throughout the hemisphere. <coughs> now we're at, on December 1st, we'll mark the first year of the new government. We've already had a number of, of uh, reports back on the government. <coughs> there was an important speech on July 1st, one year since the election, and there was a State of the Union address on September 1st. There's been some statistics and evaluations from all sides of the political spectrum that have come out as a result of those. We can go down into different areas and look at what some of those results have been so far compared to the promises. The first is economy. On March 17th, the president came out, and this was something he'd said during the campaign, but formally declared the end of neoliberalism. The economic model that's based on free trade and a market-based economy, an export-oriented based economy uh, on the part of Mexico. And of course, Mexico had been in some ways the poster child for this type of economic model, especially after entering into the North American Free Trade Agreement in 
1994 with the most developed and powerful economy in the world with the United States. Really the first time that an underdeveloped economy had entered into that kind of experiment because at the time it was an experiment. Uh, the, the valuations are generally negative. There was not the kind of growth. There was not the kind of, of uh, for example, there was a promise that immigration would go down and it actually spiked, although it then it later slacked off in the later years. But a lot of the promises that had to do with the free trade agreement had turned out to be the exact opposite. The, the divergence between the size and the power of the US economy and the Mexican economy grew. The gap between wage levels also grew, causing frictions between the working classes and workers' organizations in both countries. People were ready for a change in this sense. So the message during the campaign that neoliberalism was, would end was a welcome one, and not just among the poor, but also among a large part of the middle class and, and and including part of the elite within Mexico that also felt like the government had lost its ability to govern, in particular its ability to govern uh, the country as a whole, say. The, uh, the, the result so far has not been positive, and the president is the first to recognize that it has not been positive. We're looking at a calculation for 0.9% growth this year. It started out at two, it just kept going down and being recalculated and recalculated. So that's extremely disappointing for the government. It should be said that in the context, uh, the global context, it's also somewhat predictable. The overall growth for Latin America during this same period during this year is expected to be 0.6%. So Mexico is not the exception and it's, it's, it's not clear if we can say it's a result of the policies, but it was disappointing to the government to see that low level of growth. Inflation has been a positive point. It's been held intact, which is kind of surprising in the sense that there have been, for example, the social programs have given out 10 million student grants. They're giving out grants to single mothers uh, they're expanding the grants to the, the elderly within the country. So there's more in the, in the most needed parts of the sectors of the economy. You know, there's more money flowing. And yet inflation, which is generally speaking one of the most important indicators under a neoliberal model, is one of the ones in which they've ironically had some of the most success in keeping it down. The, there's been a slight increase in the capacity for tax collection, which was very important to the government to fund the social programs. And because Mexico had an historically low level of tax collection, and there's been uh, some changes in labor that were very important. The overall wage hike has been 16%, which given the hits that it's taken from inflation, cost of living over the years, is not huge. Their overall, the wages on the border region were doubled in an effort to create kind of a gradual evening out between US wages. And it, these, these amounts have been significant to a large part of the workers. You know, they say that most people don't earn minimum wage, but the average wage has also gone up as a result of this. There's new efforts to get rid of um, what, they're, what are called white contracts, 
which is when in a workplace the contract the, is, is signed between the boss and the workers' organization, but the workers have never even seen it. The workers' organization is made up in order to sign a contract that would prevent a real representative workers' organization to come in. Now, the, in this labor section, some of these reforms have been, if not originated, at least backed up by the renegotiation of the free trade agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Many people, especially those of us who fought against the North American Free Trade Agreement, saying it's going to hit the most vulnerable and it's going to increase inequality, which it did, you know, could say, well, how can a government that has dedicated itself to the end of neoliberalism be pushing through this renegotiated free trade agreement under a Trump administration. The general feeling, and I won't go in depth into this, was that the government just wanted to get it over with. They were doing damage control. They felt like a Trump administration could, could, uh, could cause harm to the economy. But probably the most important thing, and we're going to see this issue come up again in a minute when I talk about immigration, was that Mexico is very exposed in terms of macroeconomic indicators. What do I mean by that? It's a country where 39% of its GDP, for example, is from exports. That's about twice as much as China. And you know how much China exports, according to, according to economists. When Donald Trump would tweet that he was just, he would, he'd had it and he was going to withdraw from the North American Free Trade Agreement, the peso would go down almost immediately. The peso would go down, the ratings agencies like Moody's and Standard and Poor's would drop the ratings on Mexico or on Pemex, which happened as well. Um, and investors would get scared. There'd be a whole series of things that happened from this this kind of nebulous zone of the international financial community where decisions are made and countries, especially countries, developing countries as vulnerable as Mexico, the daily lives of citizens are impacted without every, anyone ever having elected these people or even understanding how it is that they control things, but they do. So the Lopez Obrador government has clearly had a strategy that they want to keep things stable on the macroeconomic front in order to go about carrying out the changes that they're talking about for the Ford transformation. You pro all probably already know that the Ford transformation is to say they're already placing themselves in the long view of history, of Mexican history, by saying we had independence, we had the revolution, we had the reformation, and we will be the Ford transformation. <clears throat> That's the kind of radical changes they want to see within the country. And they're figuring that they have to keep on the U.S.'s good side in order to do that. And that so far has had a number of implications. And in some ways, the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, which has some positive aspects like labor aspects and some negative aspects like pharmaceutical, intellectual property that the Democrats are fighting in the United States, is really the least of uh, what they've had to accept from a Trump administration in order to kind of not rock the boat on the economic parts. Um, in, the, in the area of corruption, the corruption has be, really been 
the signature issue for the new Lopez Obrador government. And it's been a signature issue because it represents the dismantling of the old regime in which so much that had to do with just daily life for citizens and the functioning of government had to do, was based on corruption. So, so far it looks like they have made strides. Uh, they have um, issued fines for about $70 million so far for contracts that were crooked uh, and, there's, and there are many cases pending and changes and they've been finding like kind of caches like government agencies where virtually none of the, the money just came out in the paper, the Committee to Support Tourism, for example. None of the money was going to what it said it would be. It was all being siphoned off, either political campaigns or basically to perpetuate the PRI and in its turn the PAN, the Conservative Party, in power or to enrich individual, uh, individual politicians. You probably heard the phrase that it, it would translate like a poor politician is poor politician, meaning that if you don't get rich off public office, you're not doing something right. And that's, that's been kind of the, the guideline for politicians within Mexican history. And they're really trying to turn that whole culture, not just practices, but that whole culture on its head, which is a huge endeavor. Uh, but there appear to be some, there be, here appear to be some inroads. The other area that we have to mention that's been a big disappointment, and again, recognized as being a big disappointment, is in the area of security. In security, we are now looking at the highest homicide rate for the period of, of when he took office to the nine months through August, I guess it was. The highest homicide rate uh, for that period in, that we've seen in 22 years. So that means it was worse than the worst years of the drug war under the Peña Nieto administration. And there was a very strong promise that there was going to be a complete change in the strategy that instead of this mano dura, hard line of armed forces in the street fighting the drug cartels, they were going to start looking to the, to the root causes, give young people opportunities, repair communities, um, and do more work as well on the, on the financial empires of the drug cartels. It's not entirely clear why the violence has peaked this way, except that we know that it was a tendency already and that the tendency hasn't been turned around. Uh, many of the kinds of proposals, of course, that he's putting of just increasing the general well-being of communities and, um, and offering opportunities, employment and educational to young people who are easily recruited into the cartels, these are more long-term solutions. Uh, and so they're trying to figure it out. But it's also true, in my opinion, that they haven't changed the model. So they came in and they said, they came out with a law for the National Guard. And this is an interesting example for a number of reasons with the National Guard. And the National Guard was going to be a combination armed forces police force. Already twice presidents had tried to do this in the sense that they were giving a legal framework to the participation of the armed forces in domestic safety tasks. Every single international human rights organization has said repeatedly, you should never send the armed forces into domestic crime fighting because that's not what they're trained for. They're trained to see an enemy, identify an enemy, and kill the enemy. 
If you're in the streets of your own communities, the enemy is not wearing a uniform, you don't have investigative powers, what you get is what we got, which is a huge increase in extrajudicial executions, in human rights violations against the army, in army co uh, complicity in areas with the drug cartels, a mess and a bloody mess where the number of homicides during the drug war, which, which was launched in December of 2006 by Felipe Calderon, has reached over 250,000. Many organizations have called it the worst non-war war, you know, in the, in the world because of, of this type of violence that we're seeing. Uh, and within that, there's been a particularly heavy toll on violence against women. It's mostly men who are the homicide victims, but the form, femicides and other forms of violence against women have gone up a lot within that context as well, which is, has a particularly negative impact on, uh, on communities and on families and the capacity to begin to build structures that will create a more peaceful society. The National Guard then went to, the law was presented and people said, this looks a lot like what we've seen before. And then it went into a kind of a parallel process of negotiation with the organizations, including Seguridad Sin Guerra, a civil society organization that was pressuring to, uh, for the kinds of non-violent policies that could control violence. Um, Lopez Obrador had said repeatedly, fighting violence with violence creates more violence. So they were very unhappy to see this kind of a very prominent role for the armed forces. Uh, and there was a negotiation, and there was actually limits placed, and pretty much people came out much happier with the law. And that's the way it went through Congress. And then, right after that happened, where there was kind of a lot of uh, um, uh, satisfaction that a negotiation had taken place. There was a limit of five years placed on the participation of the armed services. Right after that happened, Lopez Obrador appointed a general of the armed services as the head of this new supposedly civil police force. And very soon after that happened, the first major mission of the National Guard was to hunt migrants within the country. Again, not of accepted practice among human rights organizations. We'll see in just a minute. So, uh, you know, it's not clear where the change is in a lot of these policies or what we can expect in the area of security. Um, I think I want to, foreign policy, it's impo really important to mention because, again, we're getting mixed signals after almost a year's time on the foreign policy front there was a, a very strong commitment to multilateralism after many years in which Mexico was playing the proxy to a U.S. government, whether in the Organization of American States, backing up the U.S. government. It was one of the governments that was pushing other Latin American governments for the hardest forms of sanctions and even intervention in Venezuela. In other words, we saw a very U.S.-oriented agenda um, in terms of its participation on the world scene. This government came out and said, and said explicitly, we believe in multilateralism and without naming names, the United States, you know, and we object, we believe it's very important to stop the kinds of unilateral 
measures that we're seeing on the world scene. But then you look at what's actually happening and once again you see a government that has accepted a U.S. agenda in an area that's critical and an area that's actually the number one priority of Donald Trump, which is immigration. What happened in immigration is that we began to see a change in the modality. There's always been, or many years, been a lot of immigration from the Central American countries. We're seeing a collapse in Central America. We have Honduras with an illegitimate ruler, as well as one of the highest homicide rates in the area. We see Guatemala, which is now under a state of siege, which means a suspension of basic civil liberties, and particularly in indigenous regions where they're fighting extractivist projects and for it, fighting for control of their land and territory. Uh, and we see El Salvador, which has been subject to these high levels of gang violence for many, many years without any government being able to get the upper hand in terms of creating basic safety for families to live within that country as well. So there's been migration, and it wasn't until the end of last year that we saw a big change, which were the caravans. The, in, it, it began in San Pedro Sula, one of the most violent cities in the world, and they had they had a call to leave, to, to take from people who want to migrate north, and about 200, almost 200 people, I think 160 people, showed up at the bus station that morning, and as the, they traveled throughout Honduras and, to, and, and Guatemala to get to the southern border, the caravan snowballed. The reason for this is fairly self-evident. It was a way that families, because it's the other change we've seen in migration, it's no longer single male labor migration primarily, but rather a lot of women and children who are fleeing direct violence in their places of origin who have technically you know, a refugee status, if they were allowed to go through the channels to obtain that. Um, they couldn't pay the polleros or the coyotes to take them through Mexico. Mexico had become very violent, uh, very dangerous for migration, much more so than in the past. And so by traveling in a group, they were able to have greater visibility, they were able to have greater support from the, from the government and to take care of each other. This was really the main reason behind why this group got so good. It presented a whole new issue, or a new set of challenges to the government. Um, they couldn't really crack down on a group that large or extort or, or prey upon them the way that they did small groups and small family units traditionally coming through. The first reaction of the Lopez Obrador government as it came into office, uh, it began when Peña Nieto was still there, was to offer humanitarian visas and say, you're coming through the country, um, do it safely. It's your business if you're migrating to the United States, but we don't want you to be easy prey for organized crime here. And so there were like 12, between 12 and 13,000 humanitarian visas issued to the people in that caravan as they went up through the United, through Mexico toward the U.S. border. And there were um, some work permits as well and the opportunity to request asylum in Mexico knowing the unlikelihood of being granted asylum in the United States. Most people still want to go to the United States. A lot of people have family there. It's an issue also of family reunification. 
for Central Americans to migrate to the United States. And then in February, Donald Trump announces that Mexico is not cooperating and he's thinking seriously about closing the border in a tweet, of course. And there's instant mayhem in Mexico, closing the border again with this level of exposure to the US economy, 80% of trade um, could destroy the economy, maybe not long term, but at least short term, in just a matter of, of days or less. So there's, a, there's some negotiation. They agreed to expand what's called the Remain in Mexico program, where asylum seekers go to the United States, request asylum, and they're sent back to Mexico as they await their asylum hearings, which can be three to six months. They have very little means of living in Mexico. Mexico has no reason to accept migrants who are in an asylum process in another country, but they did. And then later in June, Donald Trump announces that uh, he's, Mexico's still not doing enough and that he's going to apply tariffs that could go up to 25% on Mexico, Mexican imports to the United States. Once again, Mexican officials, the Secretary of Foreign Relations, go running to Washington. They begin a negotiation with the Trump administration. The first report on that negotiation is kind of like, well, it's not that different. But then we get the second hidden part of the negotiation, and it turns out it includes, while we're still refusing to be a safe third country, which means that migrants wouldn't even be allowed to request asylum in the United States, because presumably they're already in Mexico, which is safe. They're still formally refusing that, but they've agreed to extend the Remain in Mexico program, and they've agreed to deploy some now 27,000, according to Donald Trump, National Guard uh, to stop migration. So they've automatically gone from an immigration compassion model to an immigration contention model replicating many of the worst practices that have been universally condemned in the United States. And the reason, again, is that economic vulnerability and the desire to not rock the boat as they're attempting to make other types of changes within the country. This has been a, a severe disappointment to many people to see this. We saw Marcelo Obrard, the Secretary of Foreign Relations, you know, <laughs> stand up and say Mexico will be the first country to apply the Global Migration Pact to make sure that human rights are the defining feature of its migratory policies. And then we pretty much saw the reverse taking place. We've, we've seen raids, we've seen you know, bus, buses, the people, even the Mexicans are being, are being inspected and interrogated on buses in the border area. The troops are on the northern border, they're on the southern border, there's a close uh, cooperation with the southern command. But this is not the beginning, I mean, this actually has been going on, and especially since 2014, which was the unaccompanied migrants crisis, there's been southern command present on the Mexico-Guatemala border, but we're seeing no doubt about it, an intensification. Um, the. Uh, one of the things that I think is, is important is to see how they describe themselves and their role in the world. In the world. And Marcelo Ebrard was just recently at the United Nations, and first he laid out 
the theory that their foreign policy was going to be based on the domestic policy. And that was going to be essentially, number one, the fight against corruption, the reducing inequality, um, and he cited the fact that there's 52 million people, poor people within Mexico, and it's a major priority. Increasing growth and with productivity, uh, and then as a result, creating a society, because they've got a very much linked to bienestar, to, to well-being in general, creating a society that's much safer and prosperous and much, uh, and, uh, and where peace can be the model instead of what we're seeing now, particularly in certain parts of the country. So having announced these domestic objectives, he then went on to say, to announce the international objectives, which again were of the commitment to multilateralism, and in that vein to proposing Mexico as a member of the Security Council, the UN Security Council for the years 21-22, they're already actively campaigning, campaigning to be a part of the Security Council. And to go back to what's called the uh, Estrada Doctrine, uh, which was kind of abandoned at the time of the technocrats, you know, when, they, when this whole outward-looking economy uh, was first adopted under the <coughs> government of Carlos Salinas. But the Estrada Doctrine basically says uh, no intervention, self-determination of the peoples, and, and peaceful solutions to controversies. That is to say, favoring a diplomatic solution over um, any types, types of intervention, certainly over military solutions. In this regard, they made a specific statement against the, the embargo against Cuba, and also without saying the word Venezuela, against sanctions against a, a country uh, where it, there's an internal, essentially, or an internal problem or conflict. Uh, in, this, in this aspect, Mexico has shown a very a different course so far on the international stage because unlike, especially the right-wing countries that have formed the Group of Lima and have supported, even the supported Juan Guaido as the interim <coughs> president of Venezuela and increasing sanctions by the US government, they came out with Uruguay and said, we believe in negotiation, that this has to be negotia negotiated and that we can't set the precedent of foreign intervention in this type of a, of a conflict. So they've been very consistent in that regard. Um, and really, and as I say, it's been a new model for, for U.S., for Mexican, um, Mexican diplomacy on the world stage. At the same time that there's this commitment, though, to multilateral, uh, multilateralism in general, we've seen that the president refuses to take part in international meetings. Uh, he didn't go to the G20. <coughs> you can have your criticisms of validity of the G20, but it could have been an interesting forum on which to present this new project that had a serious problem with the United States government, you know, and among other governments who also have serious problems with the United States government these days. And the same was true of the most recent UN General Assembly meeting. He sent Marcelo Ebrard and, uh, and declared that he was concentrating on domestic issues and would not occupy these spaces. 
And I think, and this would be to finish up so that we can have questions, I think that this is a big mistake, that we're getting to a point where eventually, especially now as we see sort of a meltdown, both of US politics in general, with the impeachment process, with the accusations <coughs> of uh, you manipulating foreign governments for domestic electoral purposes with the Ukraine scandal. You know, as we see that happen, and we're also seeing what appears to be a meltdown of a very erratic president himself, there's going to have to be a time when the Mexican government stands up and says, we're not going there anymore, you know, and says, we're marking a break, and especially on immigration, with the most anti-immigrant government in the world. Um, and when that time comes, they'll undoubtedly try to do it as they've tried to manage and placate Donald Trump up to now in a relatively low-profile manner. But when that time comes, it's going to be very important to have allies in the world. It's going to be very important to have somebody who stands up and says, Mexico has a right to do this, and in fact, we agree with what they're doing. Because there will be retaliation. And there'll be retaliation not just from this unreliable and ultra-right, perhaps pre-fascist government in the United States, but there's also going to be retaliation from the international financial com community, or whatever you want to call that, you know, in terms of uh, any attempt to break with this neoliberal form of government and with this, this strong and dependent relationship to the US economy. This has been one of the important messages for me in terms amid the criticisms, because I think it's really important to also to criticize what's happening and, and to be even-handed. In Mexico, we were mentioning there's been a lot of polarization. You tend to see like unconditional pro-AMLO people, and then you and then you tend to see like unconditionally anti-AMLO people, which is kind of constraining the room for an informed debate in the middle. There's also the reality that the right wing is going to do everything it can, legal or illegal, you know, to make this government a failure at this time. And the reality that there's a part of that international financial community that's probably going to do the same. We've seen it historically in our region, and we're very likely to see it again as the government <coughs> takes bolder steps, which up to now they actually have not in the area of the economy. So I want to thank you all for listening. It's really been a pleasure to be here, and uh, a big part of the importance of this for me is to hear the kinds of questions and concerns you have and to begin a discussion on these interviews. Thanks again.